This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Ding, ding. I don't know why I feel like saying ding, ding at the end of that song, but I just do. Good morning, Sunday Triple R listeners. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and have I got news for you. We have a show that spans the depth, the width, the breadth... Pretty much everything to do with health this morning. Here are some highlights up front. Teddy bear hospitals. What can they teach real hospitals? What exactly is a good doctor and can you teach it? What helps and hinders engagement with climate change? They're my little teasers up front. Teasers, everyone. I will personally try to add a few lowlights as well. Joining us on the panel of Triple R this morning, we have a stellar cast. First up, one of our old regulars, Eva Green. Or Evergreen, as I like to think of her. Eva wants you to have a healthy mind and a healthy climate. She is a psychologist with a passion for the environment and she does her best to combine the two. This week she's going to tell us a little bit about an upcoming conference and give us a few teasers of her own. We've got a newie, Dr Capri. Dr Capri is a GP with an interest in women's and kids' health. She also likes to teach medical students and today she's going to give us a few of her ideas about what makes a good doctor. She'll probably just point to me and say anything that's not like him. Also joining us is our special guest this morning, Professor Paul Monagle. Paul is a paediatric haematologist, try and say that with a mouthful, and the Assistant Dean of the University of Melbourne Academic Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. And, if in case that wasn't enough, he's also the Stevenson Professor and Head of the Department of Paediatrics for the University of Melbourne. Paul's here to tell us about teddy bear hospitals and how they can help doctors, patients, and apparently, I assume, teddy bears. And last but not least, you've got me, Dr Doolittle, better known as the psychiatrist of choice to the baristas of Melbourne. Not the barristers, the baristas. Um, and uh, so let's get the ball rolling. Eva, Sam. welcome back for the year. Thank you very much. It's been a couple of months, I think. I know. You know, regular listeners will probably cotton on that we have four teams on the radiotherapy and we rotate through first Sunday, second Sunday, third, you know, teams. And we're the first Sunday of the month team. It's March 1st, of course, Justin Bieber's birthday, in case anyone was wondering. Happy birthday, Justin. Yeah, happy, and also Lee Matthews. Fabulous. Yeah. So we, we haven't been on since, what, December? Yes. There's no show in Jan. The show starts the second week of Feb. We've had yep. such a long break. And over to you, Capri. Capri. Capri, I can't speak Italian. No, clearly. Um, and Capri are pants, you tell me. They are. There is, I'm actually wearing some. We should uh, put a photo on the web. Yeah, go on. Uh, yeah, they're a, they're a style of pants, and yep. uh, they're, I've chosen that name because I am short in length like these pants. Uh, Italian heritage, and I'm prone to... Um, acting out and a lot of actresses have worn them in many, many Italian movies. That's the reason. Hence the picture of Audrey Hepburn that we yes, put up on, yes. the, um, up on the website. And Professor Paul, can we call you Paul or do we have to call you Professor Paul? Paul, nobody calls me Professor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for coming along on this uh, Sunday morning. Thank you very much. Really nice to be here. And we're looking forward to hearing about the teddy bear hospitals. In fact, we're going to get onto it pretty soon. Mind you, before we do, I thought I would kick the ball off just with a little bit of news that I, I actually only read this this morning, so it's hot off my press. I'm trying to I should have a. When it actually came from the 24th of Feb, and it's from the ABC website. And I picked this out just for us. I thought it was a good start to the year, too. It's about oxytocin. You know, and oxytocin just has been getting so much airplay lately, and, uh, you know, as the so, so called love hormone. Um, 
And this was a new use of it, just in case people don't remember what oxytocin is. It is a hormone. It's produced in the pituitary gland, and it mainly plays a role in birth. And it's a drug that often is given to induce labour. It's also often used after delivery to stop postpartum hemorrhage. But people have been studying it madly for pretty much everything from anxiety, depression, love, bonding, you name it. And, and you know, all sorts of people have you know, claimed various sprays that they can use to you know, pop in the air at the bar and make every man or woman fall in love with them instantly. <laughs> all I do is tell a joke. Anyway, um, the latest one, alcohol. I found a study on the ABC website just published in the last week or two that's starting to, that's was done in rats, mind you, but the, uh, the, they found that rats, when given oxytocin first, don't display the characteristics of drunk rats. Huh. What do you reckon? What next? <laughs> it sounds a bit dubious, doesn't it? What about the behaviours of drunk rats? What do you reckon rats do when they're drunk? Yeah. They lean on the bar, you know, they order another drink. So, yeah. so they, they, just clarify for this, this for me, so did they add oxytocin to the alcohol? Well, it was actually serendipitous. They were studying, um, they were studying drunk rats and they were looking at some sort of meta- other effect of oxytocin. And the drunk rats have all sorts of behaviours. The drunk rats pretty much sit in a corner with their nose in the corner and do very little, whereas the sober rats wander around and are more social and look around the place. That's and not the case with humans, though. The drunker you get, the more social you get I know, often. these rats it's are a, weird. It's a disinhibitor. I've always it's said I refuse to go out with rats and drink. <laughs> They're just boring. And um, so these rats though, the ones that were given oxytocin, they noticed started behaving in this manner. So, of course, the study you know, went down a different path and they started looking at it and it appears oxytocin has some sort of effect at the GABA receptor in the brain, which is where alcohol works. Uh-huh. And so they're looking at how it works. But it just sort of struck me because I just thought, you know, oxytocin, what, what, it, it almost annoys me when I open the paper and read about oxytocin now because it's sort oh. of become so good. You, you love it, I can see. I do. I wonder why you I love, love it so much. I think I love the idea of... Um, you know, just thinking about attachment and bonding and, um, you know, from a very early young age, just how important attachment and bonding is to for our psychological well-being, particularly later on in our adult life. And just the idea of having some kind of more natural... Uh, medical intervention to increase our capacity to be um, benevolent, social, connecting human beings, uh, why not? Do you reckon? If you re- you know, if I, I don't know much about oxytocin yeah. enough to say that even, you could do that. But even yeah, even it, let's say you know because we don't know. I mean, it's still in the early stages of what people um, look at it about. We do know that it's you know it peaks after you have a baby and it's believed to be incredibly important in the mother's bonding to the baby as well as a list of physiological effects as long as you're Yeah. But just say we did have a spray. It can't be a tablet because it's it's all uh, wrecked in the gut oxytocin so it has to be a spray, a nasal spray. But just say we did have a spray that increased it. Would you really want to be, I don't know, would you want to be living in a society where someone might be nice to you because they've sprayed something up their nose a couple of minutes (laughs) earlier? What's the difference between that and taking drugs? And being um, nasty as a result rather mm, than... And experiencing the neurotoxic. I'd rather live in a natural society than a society where people are nice to me because of, they've sprayed but, something but, up their nose. But we know, like, that, um, for instance, when we do things like exercise and that can increase adrenaline and other um, positive chemical yep. changes in our body. Mm. So why not engage in an action that will induce that positive chemical in our body? Because I, the reason being that I worry when it's something that's artificial, because it feels to me like you, you feels to me like you're being Frankenstein. You, you just, mm. you're heading down a path that we don't really know about. Mm. Um, 
Exercise, okay, that's come from a couple of centuries, of, mm. not a couple, you know, a long time of evolution, yeah. all those things. But all of a sudden, if we can play with things that affect the way we interact with each mm. other, fair enough if you come up with a disease model. Say mm. you think that oxytocin is a treatment for alcoholism. I don't really have a problem with mm. that. Mm. But I have a problem if, um, you know, if I go to the pub and I order a drink, I look at the person next to me, I fall madly in love with him or her, who knows? People <laughs> wonder sometimes. I fall madly in love and... Uh, <laughs> and, and I find out later it's because someone played sprayed a bit of oxytocin yeah, just as I went through. Of course it's not going to do that. And then I have and to take oxytocin the rest of my life in order to maintain that relationship. <laughs> and I guess well, what we're forgetting about... Help, Sorry. You need some kind of help, Steve. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Are you suggesting that maintaining relationships might be a, a disease in itself for certain people? For some people, yes. Oh, I don't know about yeah. that. I think also what we're forgetting is that there's heaps of different psychological techniques that we know can increase connection and bonding that they're not chemically induced. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a problem with that yeah. in, to such a degree, although I sort of worry when people trick things a little bit. In fact, that reminds me of another thing I read over summer. It was this, you know, it did the rounds of Facebook, and it's got, done the rounds many times over the last couple of years. But it's all the things, if you go on a date, there's a whole lot of things that you can do that mimic intimacy. So, you know, if you want the person to fall in love with you, and you can, you know, this is all... I, I hate actually even talking about it because it, you know, teaches people how to trick other people mm. when... which And tricking people mm. to falling in love with you just seems to mm. me dumb. But it's a whole lot of things like asking very intimate questions, you know, looking them in the eye and saying, what was your childhood like? What was your relationship with your dad like? And when they talk, you know, they're the sort of things you normally only talk to people about who you know for a long time. And you can basically trick people a little bit into feeling much more closely bonded with you. And if it's being used by some half-wit down at the pub to try and con some girl or mm. some, or vice versa mm. just strikes me as being eh, the so wrong use of psychology. You're speaking to the intention, aren't you? Because those techniques or those engagements, you know, inquiring about someone, being curious and interested in them is valid in and of itself. But you're speaking, Dr Doolittle, to the intention. If the intention behind it is malicious or to trick someone or to, to get them on board for some kind of challenge you know yeah. difficult game or whatever and i think there are there are lots of books out there that speak to to dating and True. and how to do that so you're the tech i don't think the techniques are wrong it's just no. the intention behind it's, behind them fair if, point. Someone, if someone came up to me in, in the pub and started asking me about my childhood and my relationship with my father i would just turn and run yeah, <laughs> it's all in the context. Of, don't, don't forget, Capri. Don't forget, this is in the context of you know your you know a date. You know, not just someone wandering up to you. It's a while oh, since you've been even, on a first date. That's true. I know, Mr. Capri. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> true. Yes. It's yeah. kind of kind of like everything, isn't it? It's around the honesty. It comes back to the oxytocin, doesn't it? You know, yeah. Are you asking because you think it will achieve an aim, or are you asking because you're actually interested? Mm. Yes. And yes. and so if you've got the honesty that you're asking because you're actually interested, then it's probably a good thing. Any, yeah. any other purpose is probably false. And, you know, and for some people, it's probably good information too because they might just be shy and not know how to make that link, genuinely want to ask those things, and it just gives them that link. And if, if it's coming from an honest place, mm. I buy it. I'll, I'll take it. Hey, well, well let's. Um, I reckon we should jump straight into uh, having a chat to you, Paul, about um, your work and stuff like that. Why don't you set the... I've, oh, let me introduce you again. By the way, you're listening to 3 Triple R. It's radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle. We've got Eva Green over that side. We've got Dr. Capri, our newie, over that side. And uh, I'm, being, I'm do being, doing the right thing and you know, doing a bit of announcing of who's actually on the panel. And uh, our special guest is Professor Paul Monagle. Am I pronouncing that right, Monagle? Uh, Monagle. Monagle. No, don't really mind. Got him an idiot. Potentially. 
time. Yeah, and he is, as I said earlier, the Assistant Dean of the University of Melbourne Academic Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. I was going to say Australia's greatest children's hospital, but then I realised it's the world's. So really, what am I talking about? And the Stevenson's Professor of and Head of the Department of Paediatrics for the University of Melbourne. He's also a clinician. In fact, why don't we begin by just tell us a little bit about yourself, Paul. What sort of doctor are you and you know, what brings you uh, to this point in your career? I'm a paediatric haematologist by training, so mm-hmm. I've been at the children's now as a haematologist for just over 16 years. Wow. And, um, and I still work as a clinician within the hospital, um, but my academic role is within the University of Melbourne. And the University of Melbourne um, Department of Paediatrics is co-located on the Children's Hospital campus along with the hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, so it's very much a, a one-campus kind of approach. So we're all pretty intermingled there. Goodness, you've had 16 years as a haematologist in paediatrics, strikes me, especially in Melbourne. Uh, you know, some incredibly massive changes. Um, not only, obviously, a brand new hospital, which I'll add is probably one of the nicest hospitals I've ever been into, but also I would have thought haematology. You know, haematology in kids is one of the, like, isn't it really one of the, I hope I'm getting this right, the absolute success stories of, of modern cancer in terms of real change in cure rates and treatments over the last couple of decades? Uh, yes, yes it is. Um, um, I predominantly work in non-malignant haematology right. and so my most interest is in uh, clotting, clot, clot, blood clots in children and, and bleeding problems um, and that's been a total change because when I first started out you know, people didn't think blood clots happened in children and they probably didn't because children were just dying of their primary diseases. Yep. Um, and now as we keep children alive through better surgery, better other techniques, then we often see clots as a secondary complication, um, which means we're an awful lot busier than we used to be. Wow. And the Teddy Bear Hospital, you're actually here today to talk about the Teddy Bear Hospital, which is intriguing. So I think all three, the three of us here all had a different idea in our head of what a Teddy Bear Hospital might be about. Why don't you tell us, what is a Teddy Bear Hospital? So Teddy Bear Hospitals happen all around the world, and they're primarily driven by medical students at universities, and, and they use them as a mechanism to try and... Uh, to interact with children um, and to to understand how to interact with children better. So essentially what happens is the medical students pretend to be the doctors and the children are the parents and their teddy bears are the patients. And so the children bring their teddy bears along and say, my teddy bear uh, has a sore leg, has a sore tummy, has a headache, whatever, and then and then the medical students have to converse with the, with the child and talk to them about what they can do to help their teddy bear and, and explore that. So it's a great mechanism for um, for uh, people learning to be doctors to understand how to talk to children better and I think that's a really important aim. Wow. So Paul, who set it up? So as I say, they've been run uh, for many years throughout the world and I don't think anyone knows where the first one really started. The medical students at Melbourne University have been running teddy bear hospitals for a number of years and they go out to schools and community events and and do them. Uh, I think the change that we made was that a couple of years ago we thought what a great idea to be part of the Good Friday Appeal and so we um, took the teddy bear hospital to the Good Friday Appeal, the kids dig big day out, which is a big event for children in Melbourne on Good Friday and over the last three years it's grown so that last year we had over 600 students involved and I think we saw about 5,000 teddy bears for the day so it was a really big day and we're we're hoping this Good Friday will be even bigger. A lot of sick teddies. Did, did, did I hear you correctly? Big day out. What did you mean by big day out? As in, so on Good Friday yeah. uh, every year, um, there's an event 
which is the kids' big day out. Um, and oh, so it's different to the big day yeah, out concert. Yeah, That's absolutely. Bit, yeah, I was hips. thinking a whole lot of, you know, no. young hipsters bringing back their teddies from the old days. <laughs> All their teddies now grown beards. Anyway, yeah, go Yeah, on. we have some of those as well. <laughs> but um, no, and so um, last year it was held at Melbourne Convention Centre, which is where it'll be last year. And I think over nearly 60,000 people attended the day last year. And it's just a great day for people to contribute to Good Friday. There's lots of fundraising opportunities there, but lots of activities that are fun for children of all ages. Um, and adults as well and so one of the activities that runs there though is our, our teddy bear hospital and, and this year it will be made up of medical students, uh, nursing students, optometry students, dental students, physio students um, and uh, they all come along and, and we create different stations where the kids can go through and, and uh, talk about the different things that might happen to them and to their, to their teddy bears. Wow. And what kind of feedback do you, do you receive from both the kids who are involved and also the students are involved because I can imagine that would be quite a powerful process. Yeah, I think um, certainly a lot of the parents, uh, certainly it's a fun and an educative experience for the children. Mm. Um, and I think part of it to help the children is to make them, you know, to do really demystify going to the doctors so that they don't feel so anxious about medical interactions mm. and, mm. and realise that in fact, you know, doctors are just people who are there to try mm. and help. So I think that's great for the kids. So yeah, we get really good positive feedback from all of the parents. Mm. Um, and the students, I think, find it really helpful. Um, and it's fascinating for me to go and you sit there and, and watch a student and in their first 10 minutes you can see them kind of awkwardly standing there not knowing what to say and then you come back half an hour later and they're you know down sitting on the ground eye, eye to eye level with the child and now actually interacting in a really meaningful way and mm. it's a it's a really good progression to mm. see. Mm. I've enjoyed the experience so much that we're actually now transitioning it to be actually part of the curriculum mm. so we've now been running teddy bear hospitals at the children's hospital where children who are coming in for their outpatient appointment can be told to bring their teddy in and, and just make it a bit of a fun day as well as their own medical advances and the students are now having to do that as a compulsory part of their paediatric right. term. Mm. So as well as help, so it helps the kids in that the, um, the sorry the students, student doctors nurses and that helps them learn to interact with kids and interview kids in a, in a way that's not so sort of high stakes as in the hospital but it's also obviously great for the kids you, are the kids acting as like the parents of the teddy bear? Yes. So it's giving them that sort of meta view sort of so to speak. Yes that's right and so I think it's great for the kids in that it lets their imagination play out and, and all kids need active imaginations mm. and that's great um, it lets them fulfil that caring role about how to take responsibility for someone so you know if the treatment for their teddy bear is going to be three hugs a day for the next three weeks or whatever then the, you know the children are going to feel the responsibility to do that um, but I think also it hopefully gets them to not be frightened of white coats and machinery and all the different things that they see when they come to hospital and, and feel that that's a good interaction. I uh, am a tutor at Melbourne Uni for first years and I've never heard of this program. Is it something that you need volunteers for or is it something that's actively pursued by the students? Um, so this year, this year we opened up the volunteers for this coming Good Friday and uh, we've had 800 students volunteer within the first couple of weeks, wow. which I think makes it the biggest single volunteer student engagement program across the whole university. So I don't need to spruik it for you? No, yeah. I think we're doing okay, but yes. I think there's always more that we can have and if they don't come Good Friday, then um, I think, for example, the, the guys will be down at Apollo Bay at their fair uh, in a couple of weeks' time and there'll be some other uh, community-based organisations later in the year. Okay. Um, 
um, and we may well have other teddy bear hospitals running later in the year. So there's lots of opportunity for the students to get involved. Mm, fantastic. Paul, can I just um, ask, how, how long has this been running? Just remind me. So we've, we've, this, we've done three years of the Good Friday Appeal, so this will be our fourth year mm. this year. Mm. And of the teddy bear hospital, how, how old uh, is that? Teddy bear hospitals, I couldn't give you a date on it. Mm. I know that it's certainly been at hospitals throughout Europe and America for mm. you know at least a decade, I would have said. Like teddy bears, are they still as, um, in terms of children's toys and objects, I guess I'm thinking also with increasing technology and um, you know screen time and kids getting interested in phones and I just think... You're, wanting, my, an, you're wanting an my, iPod hospital, aren't no, you? <laughs> definitely not. But my nephew loves the iPhone. iPhone, iPhone is all he says and um, I'm just wondering if you've noticed any any kind of trends or differences in um, teddies versus other other comfort objects or no there's always an incredible variation um, mm. in the teddies there's your traditional teddies many people have dolls there's soft toys of all persuasion um, we've run a program for the last uh, three years at Good Friday that for children who've turned up and forgotten their teddy they can adopt a bear for the day um, and then take that teddy bear through so um, and we'll we'll probably do that again this year so yeah no incredible variation and I think um, uh, everybody needs something that facilitates that personalised interaction and everybody needs something to cuddle up to. A absolutely. And, and can I just share, uh, knowing that you were coming in today, I actually bought my teddy mm -hmm. and um, I, I felt like a bit of a bad mum actually. I haven't named my teddy but I do give I do give him a lot of love because he's actually a hot water bottle as well. And the hot water bottle goes in. It's a little leopard looking teddy. Uh, very it's very cute. soft and very cuddly and uh, I use it for for comfort, especially when I'm feeling... this teddy? Uh, about six years now. Was oh, that all? And oh, I'm just assuming. Oh, and an adult teddy Eva. Well, <laughs> he raises his eyebrows and wonders whether. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Doctor Doolittle. I'm an interstater, and I, I, you know, you can't possibly Good pack point. all of your teddies interstate. Yeah. The, they've remained at my my mum, my poor mum's house, who does all, all of my other items that I don't yeah. need. I'm tipping it's a whole bedroom dedicated to all those <laughs> yeah, teddies. I'm pretty sure. But my teddy, I've been I've been wondering for a long time. Uh, if I should do something about my teddy because if you can look just in the inside where the hot water bottle goes, there's quite a You're lot of... you to get free medical advice. <laughs> Paul a professor of paediatrics from the children's hospital and she wants her teddy bear stitched up. I don't think Paul's at surgery. That looks, you know, well, well, surgical. I, but Paul, Paul, do you actually fix teddy bears at this teddy bear hospital? What kind of advice would you, would you give me for my teddy bear? No, it's all about the imagination and I think what our teddy bear doctors would say to you is just love your teddy the way it is Great. and look after it the way it is and it'll be fine. But there are there are like commercial teddy bear hospitals that actually fix them. In fact, one of our <laughs> friends used to run one, um, one of the friends of this show who has been on. Hey, um, just to remind everyone, the Kids Day Out Good Friday Appeal Teddy Bear Day is um, Friday the 3rd of April this year. It's from 10am to 6pm at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Bring your teddy bear for a checkup. Um, as, uh, as Paul was saying, there'll be over 500 medical and allied health students volunteering from the University of Melbourne. Um, they asked for a small donation to the uh, Royal Children's Hospital Pier, which is obviously a very good cause. Hey, Paul, thanks for telling us all about that. But you are going to stick around for the rest of the show and join us in the conversations, I'm hoping. Sure I am. No Fantastic. Problems. Three. Triple. Now, our newest member on the panel, Dr Capri, or Capri, or whatever we're going to call her. Have you actually been to Capri? I have, the Isle of Capri. Beautiful. Yes. It's yes, a long time yes. ago. Mm. Yes, that's, nice. uh, maybe that would be a good prize giveaway. It a would. trip to the Isle of Capri. Now, Capri, you've brought in as your first topic 
in your inaugural sh- in your first ever show time on the show um You've, you've, you've bitten off a big one. Indeed. A good doctor. You've bit, tell us, what are you going to talk about? What are you telling us about? Well, I have been... Um, as, in my role as a, as a tutor for medical students, uh, I've, uh, in the first week of their induction uh, week, they had a, a topic which is newly introduced called Medical Humanities, which I'd never heard of. And it basically was um, engaging them in the idea that we are, as doctors, more than diagnosticians and mm. therapeutic agents. We should also be looking at human suffering and our role as healers, and that involves more than um, what we do in the truly scientific sense. So I thought that was really interesting, and the students got to go to a museum, to the Ian Potter Museum, and check out some art and look at human suffering and think about how um, medicine can engage with that on a level other than, you know, as diagnosticians. So that got me sort of primed and thinking about um, what is what does make a good doctor and I think that there's a definite discrepancy between what doctors think a good doctor is and what patients think a good doctor is. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, during our training we're always being um, judged based on our intellect and our ability to add our skills and, you know, what we can do uh, with all the all the knowledge that we have. Um, and we're, that's how we judge ourselves. So, you know, a good surgeon is someone who's technically good and, you know, can make diagnoses quickly and etc. Um, whereas patients, I think, want more than that and I think they deserve more than that. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, what what do what can you tell us a little bit about the discrepancy? Like, what do patients think is a good doctor, and what do doctors think is a good doctor? Well, I think patients want someone they can trust. Mm. I think essentially, and someone that they think is um, a, in a partnership with them on their journey for healing. You know, I think that they want someone who they think genuinely cares about them. You know, that it's based on mutual respect, trust, all those things. Because I don't think unless you have that as the basis to the doctor-patient relationship, you're going to be able to affect... Well, you, can't, you won't be able to take a good history. They won't, you know, the examination process. They won't engage in any investigations or therapies that you said. Well, not they won't engage, but you will have a much better outcome for both parties, I think, if, you've, if, you, if that's what the, the benchmark is. And speaking from my own experience of seeing many doctors over the years, I've, the ones that I've stuck with are those who have taken their time and, and patients to actually ask the right questions um, and, and not rush the conversation and not make assumptions. And they're the doctors that I'll return to. And I think that's really critical because if we don't like our doctor, we just go to another one and another one. And then that can, that can seriously impact on continuity of care and at, at your own expense, at the patient's expense. Absolutely. I entirely agree. Mm. And, and, I mean, the other issue is that, um, you know, if patients, if patients can see that we're more human and we can mm. um, touch, uh, touch base on that level, mm. they'll also not treat us... I mean, they'll expect us to have the human foibles as well, like we can make mistakes and, you know, we don't know everything. And I think that also engenders a really important part of any doctor-patient mm. relationship and you will be able to work together on a, you know, mm. on a more genuine level. Mm. Mm. I think it's a really good point, Capri, because I think one of the difficulties is that we train our doctors through a university process, and university is about conferring a degree that tests your academic you know, ability, but actually in practice it's much more about how you connect with and communicate and work with people as a partnership, and so I think that's a really different aspect mm. of it that's hard to, hard to test. Mm. Uh, I have the 
each year when I speak to the new group of students, I try and say to them, and I think there's five key points to being a good doctor, and none of them relate to intelligence. You know, mm. talk about you need yeah. to be caring and conscientious um, and careful. Um, most of all, I think you need to be able to communicate. But I think the other aspect I say is I think humility. Yes. And I think I see arrogance lead to more mistakes than any other single tray yeah. in anything. And I think that's really challenging mm. because you have to have the confidence in your decisions, but you've also got to recognise how frequently you can be wrong. And you're referring to emotional intelligence there. So you are yeah. referring to an intelligence. And what I really liked what you were saying before, Capri, about this, this concept of therapeutic agents and how... Uh, that that concept's beginning to broaden because what what is therapeutic? I mean, as a psychologist, we consider the relationship as the key therapeutic intervention. Mm. That in fact, it's not the intervention or what you're prescribing per se, although that is important as well. It's the delivery and the the art of that, and the the relationship is absolutely key for the therapy to work. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the fact that um, allied health and alternative health practitioners are so popular and sought after. Mm. Um, just goes to show that people want that other aspect that I, I think, you know, Orthodox or Western medicine isn't hasn't been really good at providing, and so people look for the other side of that care, more caring, nurturing, listening side of things that we I think we need to get better at. Mm-hmm. And and, I th- and what I love is that I think um, Mel will certainly the the uni I'm involved with is recognising that and, and certainly and, and like programs like the Teddy Bear Hospital just buy into that beautifully where the students mm-hmm. are exposed to that opportunity to, to you know, practice or um, on that level. But also the the program at uni they've got this new principles of clinical practice which when um, Doodle and I were at uni we certainly didn't have anything like that. I didn't that. go to uni, I faked my degree. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Well, I was going to expose that story. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and again, I think all those things are really uh, important, and that's. Um, but I think that's why I would always argue that paediatrics and dealing with children should be an even greater component of the medical course because children don't care how many degrees you've got after your name. They don't care, Good you know, uh, uh, you know how many papers you've published. All they want to know about and is how you interact with them, and they'll let you know really quickly if you're not doing it right. Mm. Uh, The only thing I'd um, add to it all is, you know, funnily enough, I was involved partly in a discussion in this just on Thursday night. I went to Hawthorne Readings, and they had a uh, thing on medical writers. They had uh, one of my favourites, Karen Hitchcock, who's um, a doctor in Melbourne and also a fiction writer, and they had um, Professor Paul Commissar, who wrote a book last year about, um, which he called, I think, an ethical, a bioethical thriller set in a hospital. And they're talking, and the discussion had a really broad audience of people. Some were doctors and lots of general people, and they, it got onto what makes a good hospital, what makes a good doctor. And it was really interesting because you know a number of people got up. I want an empathic doctor. I want a doctor who can listen. I want someone who can hold my hand and walk me through a difficult time. And then, um, and then one um, woman up the back said, "I've had a lot of medical illnesses, and I hear what you're saying, but it depends what's going on. Um, sometimes I just want a doctor who's really straightforward. Mm-hmm. If I know and who's just no, and more than anything, I want a doctor who knows the science and knows the mm-hmm. medical stuff. That's my number one." She said. For some illnesses, I really want someone who will um, be more empathic, especially the things that are a little bit more unknown. But the straightforward stuff, I just want someone who knows their job. And she summarised by saying, at the end of the day, I choose my doctors according to whether they have the same values as me. Mm -hmm. And I recognise we're all different. We've all got different values. And so we'll all choose different, not just doctors, doctors, psychologists, nurses, clinicians of any sorts. She said, you know, I'll shop around a little bit till I feel that someone who's got my values knows how much, you know, knows when I want um, science, knows when I want my handheld. So 
metaphorically, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess what I'm saying is it takes all types. Mm. It's not just, you know, you need a little bit of everything and especially, you know, I know a lot of really arrogant people who only like arrogant doctors. They go along to a compassionate doctor and they go, oh, my God. Mm. I wish they'd stop talking. I just mm. want someone who... So but I thought, sort of think it takes all types. Mind you, you have to have the abilities to be able to listen. And yes. I think potentially, like, we're, we're talking about this dichotomy of good, good and bad, but... Um, Paradoxically, within a, a good doctor, I've got my quotation mark fingers going up. Yeah, I'll is, testify to that. She's got yeah. two little <laughs> signs wiggling in the air. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Doolittle. Um, is, and now I've lost my train of thought, but I, I think it, it was coming, coming <laughs> back to the, the funda- fundamentally, it, even when you've got um, a doctor who's, which I've had in the past, who's, who's, you know, tells me like it is, how it is, um, based on evidence and so on and so forth, but it's still not done in an arrogant way. There's, there's mm. that straightforward scientific um you know i urge you to do this this and this kind of directive but it wasn't done in a way that was off-putting or offensive and i think um what what capri was referring to in a good doctor is that people then allow you to make mistakes and there's a in the, i think it's in the book blink uh who it's by is that by daniel card no um, no blink oh uh, sorry Anyway, keep going. Anyway, it's a, it's a fantastic book, but it does uh, it cr- crosses a lot of different subjects, and one of them is doctors and who gets sued. Mm. And the, the people who get sued, it's not about making mistakes. No. Uh, it's about the relationship. Yeah. And, 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 the, and at the end of the day, too, you want a clinician who can assess what you want mm. and meet your needs. Mm. If you want a lot of information they'll give a lot of information. Mm-hmm. If you just want it quick, sharp, they'll do, you know, and it's, which is the same principle that we have with consent. You know, your job is to figure out how much someone wants to know and deliver it, not just deliver what you think is adequate risks and consent and whatnot. So, so in this program, is it kind of, perhaps it, is it about teaching flexibility within the communication style? You talk about PCP? Yeah. Before. Well, it's actually, it's principles of, of clinical practice. So they learn how to take a history, but mm. it's more than the, you know, where does it hurt and, and how, how long is it hurt for? It's it's about listening to, um, well, first of all, learning how to listen. You know, there's, yep. there's some study that shows that uh, it takes 97 seconds for a patient to tell you their narrative that they've sat at home wanting to deliver to the doctor mm-hmm. and it takes something like 14 seconds for a doctor to interrupt. Mm-hmm. So just the process of letting the patient say what they want to say um, and, uh, you know, and, and listening to what... And hearing what their agenda is. You know, sure, I've got a headache, um, but what I'm telling you is that I can't go to work and I can't look after the kids. You know, just hearing what the patient actually mm. is suffering rather mm. than just the diagnostic mm. side of it. By the way, Blink is by Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, who I just read his other book, Outliers, the Stories of Success, which is gold. Sorry, Paul, you had a comment. Uh, I was just going to say, I think, again, it's coming back to that partnership issue, but I, I have one of the quotes I have stuck on the wall in my desk in my office is that, um, and I'm not sure who said it, you have two ears and one mouth and you should use them in that proportion. (laughs) You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. And of course we have Eva Green and you know and I love stirring her about how she bangs on about that damn climate. Really? I know, that well, old chestnut. Well, you're warm weather. <laughs> what is the problem? I know. Now, it's uh, too early on a Sunday to bite that bait, I think. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, yeah, look, I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about a conference that's coming up because I think many of the listeners uh, will have possibly heard and hopefully the panel members that um, back in 2009 The Lancet uh, actually described climate change as being the biggest health threat of the 21st century. And then this week uh, we've just had another report released from the Climate and Health Alliance um, on uh, coal in the Hunter Valley and within their report they refer to, I'm just going to read this because I think it's quite startling, that the annual toll of global intensive carbon economies estimated at 4.5 million deaths mainly from air pollution, hazardous occupations and cancer. So the harm to health is extraordinary and often in my mind, and it's taken me, me quite a long journey to get to this point of wanting to speak about climate change and take action particularly from a psychological and, and health professional perspective, but the, the question becomes how do we how do we engage in it because for years and years we've got increasing evidence the evidence is done to death the information that we have is clearly pointing to the direction that we need to to have urgent action on climate change yet there's something that uh, doesn't quite get engaged within the community and so this is why I think this conference is coming up on the 21st and 22nd of March it has is absolutely great timing it's um, hosted by an organization called psychology for a safe climate and admittedly I'm a member of that organisation, so I'll just put that out there right now. I'll try to be as, as impartial and neutral as possible. Uh, but their conference title is Climate Change, Turn On or Turn Off? What Hinders and Helps Engagement? And I think this is such an important conversation to have. And um, there's some nodding on the panel. And I'm just interested as health professionals um, just to open up this conversation while we've got the opportunity this morning. Well, I mean, from a personal level, but potentially then from a health professional level, what, what do we think it helps or hinders engagement with this very important issue? Well, I'm one of those people um, you're talking about that I'm cl I clearly accept that climate change is happening and, mm. and all of the um, negative um, fallout from that, but I'm not super engaged. Mm. I mean, look, we recycle, you know, my, my husband is very big on the green issue, but I don't think I am engaged mm -hmm. you know what you're talking about I'm very aware and I sort of do the sort of needful but I'm not sort of really engaged in the program At which we shouldn't underestimate that contribution either and what do you think what do you think is it that kind of hinders that engagement any clues f from your personal experience well, perhaps I'm just not passionate enough about it because yeah. it doesn't directly... I mean, it clearly directly affects all of us, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I can't... It doesn't seem to impact on me, so I don't think about it all the time. A lack of immediacy. There's m m too many other issues that are immediately important to yes. you. Well, but th this is one of the narratives, though, that, ke that keeps getting brought up that creates this kind of distance. Because I think what you're speaking to is that on our reasonable brain level, on our rational level, logical level, yes, we accept it, but human beings... Are as we know, as health professionals, have the emotional, social level side as well, and that's that's the narrative that we're kind of creating. Is that you know it doesn't feel immediate, and it's so interesting. There's these statistics that I can't think of off the top of my head, but people often um, feel like climate change will impact them personally, but they feel like that it will impact their local community more and the broader community even more, almost as if they're separate from that community. It's it's really fascinating. I, I wonder whether part of it as well is whether people just feel a bit powerless. You know, Absolutely. That, you know, um, yeah. What can I do as, a, as an individual when yeah. I think there's all these you know, huge corporations or even countries that are having a much bigger impact? But yeah. I think there have been 
lots of examples through history about the power of the small individual yeah. and I think if we can you know if everyone can take that on board then maybe we get somewhere more yeah, mm. yeah I, and I, I, oh, sorry do you no, no answer I, I was just going to um, acknowledge that because I think there's um, what these kind of articles that we're increasingly seeing in the media is more attention on climate change from all different um, uh, aspects, you know, the environmentalists might t talk about it from a biodiversity point of view, whereas the health professionals will talk about it from a health perspective. Um, other people will talk about it as a human rights issue or um, as, you know, a growth and an economic issue. So it's coming at, at us at all different angles. And I think um, that reality can, the more we experience that reality, the more we, we're faced with those difficult emotions that can, can arise from feeling powerless to feeling apathetic. Just, just that um, fundamental overwhelm of the whole subject. I've got a couple for you that I've th thought of whilst you've all been talking. I've been racking my brain. <laughs> One I cheated and looked up beforehand because it reminded me when you said you're talking about this and I looked up this something I read in the science literature from oh, it was ages ago. It was from my paper files even. But it was a, the question was does ideology trump facts? Studies mm. say it often does. Absolutely. And it was a study looking at people's beliefs versus, versus the facts and they did it in both, it was in America and they did it in both people who had Democrats and Republican beliefs mm. and they for example they showed the Democrat they that asked the, a Democrat mm. who had a particular view about a Republican politician mm. and in, this particular view they had and when they initially questioned them 50% of the Democrats mm. didn't like this politician mm. Mm. then they played an ad with a whole lot of fake information saying what a right-wing um, bastard he was basically um, you know with a whole lot of fake information and then 80% of them mm. said no they don't like him mm. and then they tell them it's actually that ad was nonsense. We made it up. None of it's true. And then they measure them later, and uh, and it only goes back to seventy six percent. So a whole lot of people, regardless of the fact that they know it's not true, they their ideology trumps facts. And and this versions of that study. Yeah. There's a whole lot of versions yeah. of it done in different ways. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that? Well, there's a lot of research around there in communications, but also um, Anthony Leverwitz, who is um, from the Yale Cognition Project. He speaks a lot around um, different ideological perspectives and um, how when we're actually asking do you believe in climate change we're not asking people if they believe the scientific facts we're actually pulling on their um, personal preferences and their mm. social group and this is where climate change becomes a social con socially constructed kind of narrative um, so the what we believe is based on our in-group and out-group and this is why it's so important to begin to tap into all of the different groups and how they all see climate change from their own perspectives um, rather than it being um, kind of cast aside as simply an environmental issue because that just pushes people away. And there are conservatives, my, my dad being one of them who's concerned about climate change oh, who for course. a long time. He, yeah, he I'm wasn't, not suggesting it's but, split, just the but, study was split. Yeah, but, but you know, even the language, you, yeah. we ask people all the time, do you believe in climate change? Mm. Don't we believe in God or not or believe in aliens and yeah. ghosts and stuff like that? Yeah. Sh shouldn't the question be, how do you, <laughs> what's your understanding yeah. of the evidence regarding yeah. climate change? Yeah, well, and... and Interestingly enough, George Marshall, who's recently um, came out to Melbourne from the UK, spoke a lot about um, this topic around engagement of climate change. And in the in the kind of final chapters of his book, which is Don't Even Think About It, uh, he speaks about uh, religion and climate change. Not to say that climate change is like a religion, but what we can learn about how people develop a level of conviction for a particular subject. And what we can learn from religion are things like... Um, 
that, that it's a process of conviction. You know, you don't just suddenly read a book and believe in climate change, although some people do have that kind of moment of reading. A lot of people have read Tim Flannery and have those moments of, OK, I've got to do something. But for the most of us, it's a process that takes time and we'll have an epiphany at one point. Um, but what religion brings is a similar kind of process in terms of belief in God. But what they add is things like forgiveness and humanity. And I think that's what could be added to climate change because as we're faced with this um, paradox that on the one hand, okay, we're, you know, climate change is happening and it's human caused and, on, and we need to do something about it. But on the other hand, uh, I'm actually contributing to this every single day in my life and there are systems and processes that uh, as a technological, industrialised society that are contributing to it as well. And how do I hold that dissonance in my own mind and in my own heart and, and still engage in a process of change? And I think that's why this conference, I'm just going to bring it back to the conference because um, it's a space to have those kinds of conversations. So we've got um, Susan Murphy, who's the author of Minding the Earth, Mending the World, and I've got her book here. I'm about three-quarters of the way through it, like many books I start and stop, and it takes me a while to digest. But one of the key... Um, messages that I'm getting through her book is the importance of uh, our quality of life and our connection with the earth as being absolutely essential for our health and well-being and she speaks a lot about the history um, of the human race and how our more recent history with the engagement in technology um, and how I guess coming up to now when we've got so much engagement with technology that almost virtual reality takes over real reality and we begin to learn about our lives through books and through documentaries rather than our external world and actually experiencing the world with our own senses um, and that ha that has far-reaching implications and we see constant studies coming out about you know screen time and teenagers using you know watching too much and playing too many games and how that impacts their sleep um, and their well-being but then it's got those broader implications like if you're not connecting with the real world how do you know what your impact on the real world is Mm. And you can tell us about the actual conference, I when, when where so. and stuff too, which we yes. will put on our Facebook page, which is called Radiotherapy at Triple R. Fantastic. Um, yep. So jump on board there, like so us and have a look at this. And also put the link to the Teddy Bear Hospital on that Facebook page too. Fantastic. So the conference is at Northcote North Town Hall on Saturday the 21st of March as a full day conference uh, with Susan Murphy as the keynote and ending in a debate. Um, the debate is on does the truth about climate change motivate us to act? And we've got comedian Rod Quantock uh, as as well as Melbourne-based activist, uh, writer, author David Spratt. And then the second day is um, all around nurturing and nourishing, and we've got some workshops uh, which you can dip, choose whichever workshop you want to attend, and Susan Murphy is running that, as well as some members from Psychology for a Safe Climate. So I encourage everyone to hop on to Triple R or to the um, Psychology for a Safe Climate website, www.psychologyforasafeclimate.org. Fantastic. It's going to be a busy lead-up for you and your ilk. It is. Excellent. Hey, um, it's drawing us to an end. We've still got a couple of minutes. Um, Can I just say about... Oh, sorry, go on. Terms. Go on, um, Marie. Take over. You, thank you. Um, that I think rather than asking people, do you believe in climate change, mm. is are you concerned about it? Because I think a lot of people Good are. Point. Yeah. You know, the belief thing is, you know, what you were talking about before, but I think most people are concerned about yeah. climate change. It's just they don't, as you say, don't know how to engage with it, and I think yeah. that's the, the hard part. And I think that's what, and that's the critical question, because people are concerned. There's quite um, mm. a high, I think it's around 60 to 70%, exactly. and I think that's why this conference is such good timing, because it is more about the engagement and the how, and the emotional engagement specifically. Mm. 
Mm. Excellent. Paul, final comments? Oh, you might even take it to are you concerned about climate change for you and your family? Yes. Or not? Because, again, I think people need to understand that immediacy for their own for their own people they care and love about. Mm. And, uh, that mm. and I think we should finish on you too because you're our special guest. Professor Paul Monagle from the Children's Hospital and University of Melbourne has been in here today to talk about teddy bear hospitals and also join us in everything else. And we've also had our regular Dr Eva Green back once again on her favourite topic, which she spoke so eloquently about. And I'm yeah. tempted to... If it wasn't for the fact that I'm in Tokyo that week for a different conference... <laughs> oh, poor thing. Um, I'd be coming to that. Catch and you Dr, next time. Yeah, Dr Capri, what did you think of your first show? Are you happy? Did we, did we treat you... Gently? Uh, oh, you treated me very gently. I'm not sure how my family will treat me hereafter. Do you reckon they'll criticise you? I reckon you've done a good job. Oh, I agree. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm we'll giving see. it I'll let, you know, I'll let you know what the um, post-mortem was. <laughs> good. We want to hear next okay. time. Um, you've been listening to Radiotherapy on 3 Triple R 102.7. Uh, thanks for listening, gang. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.